0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Hello, it's James here with another episode of the Eurotrip, the world's favourite Eurovision podcast. And as we have been doing over the last few Fridays, uh, we've been giving you an extra bonus treat. Of course, we are here with you every single Wednesday for your Eurovision fix, all the latest news, the biggest guests and... A brand new edition of Rewind. Uh, but on these Fridays, we've been bringing you Rewind Revisited as we head into our archives and bring you an edition of Rewind from Series 1 that we did last year. Now, I am afraid to say that today is the last episode of Rewind Revisited. I know, I know, it's sad, it's sad. But of course, every Wednesday, we are back with a brand new episode of the Euro Trip, so worry not. But today, I'm going to be bringing you the very first edition of Rewind that we ever did, as we head back to 1998. Now, of course, when we brought you this, it was the last time the UK had hosted the Eurovision Song Contest, when they did so in Birmingham. And this is a great edition of the Eurovision Song Contest, and therefore a great edition of Rewind. Uh, we get to hear from some of the people who were there in attendance, including somebody who was very close indeed to one of the legendary hosts of Eurovision, Katie Boyle. If you don't know what I'm talking about already, if you can't remember it, or if you've not heard this episode yet, you are in for a treat. Uh, We'll also hear from some of the brilliant archive as well that'll really help tell the story. Now, as you listen to this, Rob and I are working away in the background on two... More editions of Rewind that'll be coming to you over the next coming weeks. Don't forget, if you want to support what we're doing here on the podcast, you can do on Buy Me A Coffee. You can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Eurotrip Podcast. Or you can just get in touch with us online and let us know what you think. We are at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email. And you can read all of our exclusive stories on EurotripPodcast.com. But shall we get to it then? For this Rewind Revisited, it's time for
2: Eurovision
3: 1998. This is the EuroTrip.
2: Very exciting that we are here with our very first Rewind. So let's kick off a little bit more about what was happening in the world as we prepared for the Eurovision Song Contest of 1998 in Birmingham. Well, I can tell you that all Saints were at the top of the UK chart. They are only there for a week, though. The day after the Eurovision Song Contest, Aqua knocked them off and uh, they took the top spot in the UK chart. Uh, (laughs) Labour, they were celebrating a year in power under Tony Blair. And of course, at the time of the contest in early May, both England and Scotland were preparing for the Football World Cup. Now, that would get underway the following month in France. At the media, they were full of rumours suggesting that the coach, Glenn Hoddle, might pick a young midfielder for his England team by the name of David Beckham. Uh, You might remember, this is how his tournament ended a few weeks later.
1: Now, whether
4: Beckham accidentally smacked into the defender, Simeone, the midfielder, I don't know. But Beckham's holding his head. I think a yellow card is going to be brandished here somewhere and it might be to David Beckham. I'll now tell Shearer's you. telling Battistuta not to get involved, the two captains there... Oh, Brian, it could be a red card, that's what that's what Alan Shearer's what, worried about. What, for Beckham? Yes, because he retaliated... And it's they a yellow
0: card, it. wait a minute, he's taking
4: another card out for Beckham, it's a red
0: card for David Beckham! So Beckham is out of the game.
2: Although, safe to say, things got slightly better for him after that moment. In the world of Eurovision now, this is why you're here, of course, and Birmingham were the winners of another hard-fought bidding race here in the UK to host the contest. Sound familiar? Back then, the EBU visited venues in Belfast, Cardiff, Glasgow, London, Manchester, and of course Birmingham, before revealing that the contest would be heading to the Midlands on the 8th of August. An early decision. Imagine a host city decision being made as early as the 8th of August now. God,
1: blame me. If we got that this year, you imagine the excitement would have kickstarted even earlier, wouldn't it?
2: It would, although there would have been a chance that I could have been here for the bonus host city episode and not been on (laughs) holiday. So there is that. So in the April of 1998, stand-in
1: studios were also prepared, as well as the main stage in the National Indoor Arena in Birmingham. Uh, They were in the BBC's Television Centre in London and Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham. This was, of course, the last contest where all participants were required to perform in the language of their country and the last to feature an orchestra.
2: Now, a Birmingham University student designed the trophy. Of course, back then, you know, we had a new trophy every single year, not the same design. And the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, as they were then, made their debut. And 1998 was full
1: of names that you'll know and love. Uh, 1994 winner Paul Harrington was on backing vocals for Ireland. Koyt Toom was representing Estonia. He did so again, of course, didn't he? 19 years later in 2017. Uh, the host of the 2011 contest, Stefan Raab, was the conductor for the German entry that year. And another feature host, Edcilia Rombley, was representing the Netherlands. But... Perhaps the most famous name at the contest that year was, of course, Terry Wogan.
3: Bonsoir, mesdames et messieurs. Bienvenue à 43e concours de la chanson directe de la National Indoor Arena of Birmingham.
2: Great to hear Terry there speaking in French. And also, I am doing everything in my power to stop myself doing the first Terry Wogan impression of the 2023 (laughs) season. Shall we hear from a fan now? So this is Katie Isles. She's from Birmingham and was in the arena as a fan during the show.
5: I was a very massive Terry Wogan fan. And I loved him being part of Eurovision. And everyone fell in love with Ulrika. I mean, everyone during the voting, they were all just like, oh, my God, ah, she's so gorgeous. <laughs> what I liked about it was it was a very relaxed style because I think quite often we get robotic hosts don't we? And I know there is obviously the language issue sometimes with speaking English and they do a brilliant job and I would hate to, you know, have to stand there and do it in Croatian or whatever. Um, But I liked the informal style. But yeah, weird combo in a way, but also quite nice that we got the different languages and we had a Swedish national able to communicate in so many different languages
2: on our behalf. Yeah, very fitting that we're talking about the hosts, as there was an iconic Eurovision presenter in attendance that night as well. Katie
4: Boyle, who hosted then, went on to compare three more contests,
3: and I'm delighted she's able to be with us here tonight. Katie Boyle.
1: Now, obviously, we can't hear from Katie herself on the podcast, can we? But... Rob, I consider this some of my very best detective work that I've ever done on the podcast because I found somebody who was very, very, very close to Katie during the show. Hi, I'm James Churchfield
4: and I sat next to Katie Boyle at the Eurovision Song Contest in 1998.
2: Sat next to Katie Boyle. (laughs) Are you joking? (laughs) Tell me
1: that's good, eh?
2: Incredible. How did you find it? Oh,
1: honestly, I'm not going to give away my techniques, but I still we'll consider that for a long time the best get I've Were ever got. Were they legal? Yeah, it was definitely legal. I promise you, I promise you. But check that out. Honestly, sat next to Katie Boyle, sat in the audience, eh? Incredible.
2: Yeah. Honestly, well done. Regardless of whatever we do for the rest of this episode and maybe the rest of this series, we might not talk this. <laughs> but I can hear you
1: asking, Rob, what was it like to be sitting next to Katie? She was critiquing
4: quite a lot of what was going on with her sort of connections to France and all of that. She really, really did not like the French entry. She did not hold back saying to me, she said, what absolute rubbish this is. She adored Gildo Horn um really really loved it and obviously when you see his performance for Germany coming down and coming along the front and then he kind of acknowledges her as well and she she really loved that but the the kind of abiding memory for me is that throughout the performance she shared her tic-tacs with me and she had (laughs) had this little packet of tic-tacs that she would get out periodically I don't know how long she'd had them for, but they were not the crunchiest Tic Tacs I've ever eaten. (laughs) It were quite soft, (laughs) but they made us both minty fresh for the whole of the contest.
2: Imagine turning up for Eurovision and then finding out that you get to share Katie Boyle's (laughs) Tic (laughs) Tacs.
1: No, I I can imagine that probably wasn't the reaction you thought you were going to get from James uh...
2: No, unbelievable. And also I feel sorry for the French entry that year because Casey obviously didn't like them very much. But also very funny that Casey was a big fan of the German entry, which I'm sure we will come to later indeed let's get to some of the songs then shall
1: we Uh, not a song that you'll immediately remember perhaps but let me bring your attention to song number two that night it was Greece uh, and the artist was Thalassa Uh, but it seemed there was a lot more drama with the songwriter uh, as this clip from the documentary Naked Eurovision explains
2: it's only day one but already their composer Yanis Valvis is not a happy man
3: uh, I'm disappointed with the, the disorganized here. I'm the, direct, I'm the composer of the song, and I, content, I protest about all of this. That's why I'm not in the skin to play. I uh, just to
2: introduce myself. I'm Ben Kellett. Uh, and this is Malcolm Johnson. I'll be taking your comments on cameras and lighting, and Malcolm will be looking after the sound. I think generally you'll agree that um, no.
3: the main. You don't know what I'm going to say. Yet. No, it's possible to believe it. You can go with camera yeah, up. Yeah. In, a, in a basketball, uh, I'm very sorry. In my video happy. clip, there's only one director and edu- edu- one photographer. Can, you, can we look no, this sorry, this video good. clip, please? No, what European com- community like you? I don't. I don't want for you to, to talk to us with a colonial yeah. behavior. Yeah.
1: Uh, Now, there's also a great extract uh, from a book by Gordon Roxburgh, who we mentioned before, of course, volume four of his Songs for Europe series. He interviewed the exec producer, Kevin Bishop, for the book, and Kevin said he was becoming such a pain. He's talking about the songwriter there. (laughs) So in the end, we banned him, (laughs) but he managed to turn up to the after show party, even though there were photographs on the door saying, don't let this man in.
2: Yeah, he wasn't a happy man, was he? Or oh, Yannis, listening <laughs> back to that clip, was not very pleased at all. How did Greece do that night? Are we coming to that later? Or was that going jumping
1: ahead? Uh, Well, feel free. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll come back to some of the results later. I'll keep you on tenterhooks to find out how how well Greece did. Uh, But staying on some of the songs, shall we uh, fast forward in this uh, edition of Rewind uh, to song number eight, Donna International, of course. And now during the postcard before the song, Terry Wogan said, this next one is the one that's got half of all the publicity and the other half has gone to the song that immediately follows this. So naturally we'll focus on song nine in a second. But first, it's Dana International.
5: Dana International came on that stage and made an impact. And at the time, obviously having Donna there, it was a bit, Whoosh! And obviously there was a bit of controversy over in Israel and they didn't want her to represent Israel. And you know, so it was, I mean, it still probably would be, but now, but back then, can you imagine 24 years ago, it was like, wow, who's this and what's she doing? And how does she look? And this is really interesting. So if you can imagine that it had a whole lot of controversy as well as getting on that stage and just going, Armea and delivering and belting out that song.
0: Viva la Ria, viva Victoria, Afrodita. viva la diva, viva Victoria, Cleopatra.
2: Dana International, such a moment for the Eurovision Song Contest. Like, I don't know any artist, maybe that has changed the contest as much as she did, with one performance and one appearance on the stage at Eurovision?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? You know, there's some Eurovision performances that will just always be remembered. Some for good reasons, some for bad reasons, but others just because they're so iconic and they sort of change the perception of something associated with Eurovision. And it's yeah, it's safe to say, Donna International was definitely one of those uh, one of those performances.
2: And the fact that she was there in the first place was an achievement in itself, because when I was researching this episode, when I knew we were going to kickstart Rewind with 1998, I was looking through a brilliant book I've got from Chris West. He was saying in the book that, you know, some of the major political parties in Dana's home country of Israel were trying to ban her participation in the contest. So the fact that she was able to go to Birmingham and then won the contest, well, spoilers, (laughs) 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 is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, you'll remember
1: before I mentioned that Terry said in commentary that the song following Dana International was also getting
2: a lot of media attention. Yes, now this is, I think James is right in saying, Germany's entry that year. The artist is Guido Horn with a song, Guido hat euch lieb, which literally translates as Guido loves you.
4: I remember Gildo much more than I remember Dana. I really do, because he was everywhere, absolutely everywhere, jumping off the stage and then getting up onto that balustrade where the scoreboard was, which was right above where I was sat. So I had this most amazing view, you know, when he stood on the rails and all of that. And again, as I said, you know, he came really close to us with me sat next to Katie Boyle, you know, and he kind of brushed her cheek, and you see it, and there's me sort of being very sedate, sort of clapping along, very genteel. But inside I was thinking, yes, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm seeing this. I'm seeing it so close hand. But I do think, actually, now I think about all of the acts, he is the one that really does stand out for me.
2: Now, James, if anyone has seen or hasn't seen this performance, you just want to talk us through what Gildo does. Because I've never seen a Eurovision participant go quite as far as he does away (laughs) from the stage. He just goes for a wonder, doesn't he? Yeah,
1: what doesn't he do? He's on the stage, he's off the stage. Of course, James just mentioned there, he goes and sort of brushes Katie Boyle's face as if to acknowledge her. Then he starts climbing on what looks like scaffolding, but is actually part of the stage. He seemed like the very first chaotic energy kind of Eurovision participant, didn't he? I feel like he he started a lot of
2: what was to, to come over the following years. Yeah, totally. I feel like Gildo is responsible for a lot, like you said, of what was to follow over the, the following few years of the contest. Uh, something that is away from Rewind very, very quickly. Uh, Gildo actually came up on the Graham Norton show last week, which is not a sentence you expected me to say, was it? It wasn't. Tell me more. Uh, So Motsi Mabuse was on there. Uh, She's a judge on Strictly Come Dancing here in the UK. Uh, She was previously a judge and before that, previously a professional dancer on the German series of Strictly Come Dancing, which I'm pretty sure is just called Let's Dance. And she was paired in her first season on the show with Gildo Horn oh incredible is that that's our homework for next week then let's all go and
1: <laughs> go and look at some gildo horn stuff from the from the german version of strictly
2: yeah so uh yeah i just thought i'd mention it because uh yeah it was a weird thing where yeah it seems like a just an odd coincidence but yeah gildo uh, mentioned by graham norton on tv here in the uk last week well there you go now then
1: let's uh, let's skip forward to another song a song I'm sure you're going to recognise the UK's entry that year Amani with Where Are You
4: I think there and obviously since then we've had a very difficult time but I remember thinking this is quality this is really great stuff but I remember her coming on and her performance and a real sense of the crowd backing her and I think that was both in terms of how she performed and the quality of what she performed and an opportunity that you know we could really hold our own and hold our head high that night and i'm and i'm not surprised that we did as well as we did well am i no maybe maybe on reflection i was a bit taken aback that we got so close to winning again with it but really when you look at the the components of that whole um package it, it, it was bound to score well Where are you
2: james they're saying it was bound to score well it really was. This is one of my favourite Eurovision songs from years gone by. That and the Dutch entry this year that you mentioned earlier on from Ed Silia Romney. But yeah, Imani and the UK. The UK bringing, honestly, top quality entry after top quality entry in the final few years of the 90s, I would say.
1: Yeah, it's one of those that sometimes goes under the radar, I think, in recent years. But every time it gets brought up, I think everybody is always in agreement, aren't they? That this is one of the UK's most well-loved, well-respected, and of course, as we'll find out later, as you'll probably well know already, one of
2: the highest scoring as well. Absolutely. One of my favourites. And who knows, we could have found ourselves in a bit of an island situation, couldn't we, where the UK could have won the contest... Two years in a row, could have hosted it two years in a row as well, which, who knows, maybe could happen in 2023 and 2024. We can only hope. Indeed. Now, I want to take
1: us uh, all the way to the voting, actually. Uh, here is host uh, Ulrika Johnson chatting to the EBU executive supervisor at the time, Christine Marshall Ortiz. Bonsoir, Christine, ça va?
5: Bonsoir, Ulrika.
1: going the vote has gone just fine and the Eurovision network now is on place so good luck everybody yes the very best of luck
5: (laughs) if anything's gonna go wrong it's gonna go wrong now
2: if anything's gonna go wrong it's gonna go wrong now which (laughs) fills the entire auditorium in Birmingham with confidence as well as (laughs) every viewer watching at home
1: it sounds like a very common saying, doesn't it, <laughs> at Eurovision? Um, but yeah, did it? Let's find out. Here's James Churchfield again.
4: I felt that it was one of those contests when she'd really warmed to the to some of the spokespeople. I mean, it was lovely the the interaction. I think it was the Polish spokesman who was clearly very flirty with the saying about "I'll give you I'll give you twelve points." And then, of course, the big the big memory um, of the um, well the misunderstanding with the Dutch spokesperson, uh, the, the former contestant, and um, it was it, it was great. It, it you really felt that ripple go through the audience, and it took a while for us to settle down. And I could see Ulrika Johnson like, oh crikey, I hope I can get this together.
2: One of the most iconic moments from any vote at any Eurovision Song Contest, what James has just mentioned there.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? But I, I want to I wanna play the clip, actually, because I feel like it always gets mentioned, it always gets brought up on these highlight shows of the Eurovision Song Contest, because that was uh, Connie van der Bosch. She was the Dutch spokesperson, um, as we're about to hear. But Ulrika wasn't being rude, as the crowd seemed to think. Uh, just repeating what Connie had said to her just beforehand. Let's have a listen
5: to the Netherlands, Gordon and Connie.
0: Hello Birmingham, hello Ulrika, this is Hilversum calling. Before I start giving you my points, I should like uh, to say that my heart goes to all the singers in the contest because I know what they feel. I know you, of course, have taken
5: part, so you must be feeling their nerves. (laughs) A long time ago,
0: was it? No, I didn't
2: Oh dear, you can see how it happened though, can't you? You can,
1: you can. If you were in the auditorium, you may not have heard what Connie had said beforehand. She was just reacting. She said, it was a long time ago. Ulrika said, a long time ago, was it? She was just repeating the question back.
2: Yeah, she was, she was. So you got a feel for Ulrika. We should point out as well, by the way, the voting at, at the Eurovision Song Contest in 1998, it was it was big, wasn't it? It was a big deal because this was the first time that, that almost, because this was the first time that the Almost all countries moved to, to, to a televote, wasn't it? It was. So we'd had the, the trial of
1: televoting with just a handful of countries the year before when we had uh, Ireland hosting in 1997. but the BBC rolled it out pretty much across the board. It was just a, uh, just a couple of countries that, that were still relying on the jury. So it was safe to say that 1998 was a, a bit of a milestone uh, contest in itself.
2: Yeah and and also I was reading about this again in that Chris West book that I mentioned earlier on which I will mention a lot in future rewinds to come but yeah he was saying that there were lots of sort of systems put in place because there were big worries that lobby groups from one country could vote for another song by sort of going en masse to another country and then voting from there so you know the idea of I don't know, say you support Spain, you'd all hop in a bus and drive over to Portugal and then you'd all vote from there. But yeah, systems were put in place to stop that happening. And also back then, there were 16 members on the backup jury. Of course, this wasn't at the time of split jury, split televote. This was, if you can, you all vote via the televote. But yeah, 16 members on a backup jury back in 98. That's just reminded me of something that I hadn't thought about for a
1: long time, because I'm pretty certain uh, that Lee Smithhurst, who's been on the podcast before, works at the BBC and is going to be the head of show for Eurovision 2023. I'm sure he was on that backup jury either in 98 or 97. I'm going to have to dig that out. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure
2: I'm telling the truth there. I think you're right. And I think we can probably ask him. I think he's hopefully on the podcast again soon. Fingers crossed. So... Let's write that down somewhere so we don't forget, and we can ask him. <laughs> Somebody
1: remind us. But anyway, uh, let's stick on the voting now. Uh, we were chatting a little bit about the the sequence of the voting and and how it was a revolutionary with the t- the televote, but the voting sequence itself was very very tense. Uh, here's Katie Isles again.
5: The voting that night was so close and so exciting and literally in the end there were, there were five but then in the end there were four and it came down to the last vote. i mean they, they literally kept moving and, and and shunting up and down especially malta israel and then netherlands uk were like fighting for third and fourth and then by one point uk came up and pipped malta to end up second once again so the voting was phenomenal
2: Yeah, you have to go and watch this voting sequence back after you've listened to this podcast because it was all over the place. And like Katie said there, the fact that at one stage it could have gone anywhere within sort of four countries like Israel, Malta, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, all in with a chance of winning at one point.
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, shall we? We might as well play it. So the voting in 1998 went right down to the wire. Uh, so let's remind ourselves of the final set of votes. Uh, and it was coming from uh, the country that was making its debut that year, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia.
0: Seven points this is, the this is getting a bit nail-biting now. Israel, eight points. Oh, eight points to Israel. Israel. Does this mean Malta's won it? Come on, oh, strike United a life.
3: Kingdom. 10 united points kingdom, the united kingdom Ten pushing points, it into so second place who's gonna get the 12 and finally 12 points from macedonia goes to croatia
0: croatia croatia israel
3: have won it israel have won it by seven points over the united kingdom i'm afraid i've got a love you and leave you yeah, i a fish to fry
2: i just love the curveball of it going to croatia the 12 points. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Do you know, we, I think we're so used to Eurovision voting being really tense now. It always comes down to that final set of televote points in the new system that we've had since 2016. But you've got to remember, back in the day, often, the, the winner was already wrapped up because we would had a lot of points going to the eventual winner, and it was already decided by three or four countries still left to vote. But 1998 was one of those occasions where it was down to the, literally the last set of 12 points, and we, we didn't take that for granted back in the day.
2: No, so tight, and I think we saw in a couple of contests, sort of in the in the following years, we had sort of similarly tight voting, but none quite as tense as that. And what is incredible about that, of course, is Sir Terry Wogan that you heard there commentating on that tense moment because he was commentating and hosting, of course, for the BBC in 1998. So he was then having to then dash onto stage to to present the trophy after it. So. Oh, honestly. I mean, what an evening. What an evening for him and what an evening for everyone else.
1: Well, it's funny you you, you say that. He didn't really have to dash off at all, did he? Because I don't know if you remember, but... He was <laughs> taking that, a long walk. Yeah, there was that huge delay, wasn't there, between that announcement that we just heard, that Dana International was the winner, and her actually arriving on stage for, for collecting the trophy and her reprise. Now, I delved into our own archive here at the Eurotrip because about a year and a half ago, We spoke to a guy from Israel called Gilad Yanai, and he was part of the Israeli delegation back in 1998. And here he is recalling a story from that contest.
3: Dana, she's a wonderful singer. She's a great person, really, to to hang around with. But the team is a little bit cocky. They thought, like, we don't have to wear the dress in the rehearsals. They wanted to keep it as a surprise. And only I think it was the rehearsal before the jewel rehearsal. They gave their points, like the backing bo- uh, points. She took out the dress and performed with it, and it didn't look good at all. Uh, Saturday morning, we all ate breakfast at the hotel, and all the faces of all the delegation people like was, oh my god, what are we doing? So they knew they were not going to wear that dress. How are we going to tell Jean Paul Gaultier we are not using his dress? Uh, I believe it was Offer Chauffeur, uh, the person in charge of the, the moves, the choreographer, uh, who said, Well, you know, guys, if we win, we'll use his dress as the winning performance. So, so I don't know if they sent him a fax or phoned him, um, but someone did very carefully. And all he said, all Jean-Paul Gaultier said was, guys, you do whatever you need to do to win.
2: I remember Gilad telling that story the first time. And what a story. So I think that just about explains why there was such a long delay. But honestly, amazing. And, and what brilliant sort of, well, fitting for the song, really, wasn't it? What brilliant diva behavior. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You said uh, such a long delay.
1: You know me, I've done the maths. It was three minutes and 10 seconds precisely <laughs> from her being announced as the winner to her arriving on stage. So instead of heading to the stage, uh, Donna International instead dashed off to change from that original outfit uh, to the reprise dress, the one designed by Jean-Paul Gaultier, uh, covered in feathers, which is now, I think, become such an iconic image in Eurovision
2: history. Well, there is only one way that we can end rewind, of course, and that surely is to is to play the play the winner again. A reprise, as it were, from nineteen (laughs) ninety-eight.
0: La, 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 la. is ra this coming the yes
1: There it is. Then, of course, the winner of Eurovision 1998, uh, Donna International, with Diva, on 172 points. Uh, the UK's Amani with Where Are You coming in second. Uh, Malta's Chiara, who then went to represent Malta again twice more at uh, the contest, finished third. Uh, the Netherlands at Romble uh coming in fourth, and then Croatia, who got that last set of 12 points. Finished fifth. And Rob, I know you mentioned it before. Where did Greece come? Uh, 20th place out of the 25 performers. Oh, I can understand why Yanis was a bit annoyed then. <laughs> <laughs> it all makes sense. So there we are then. That is it for this week's edition of Rewind.
5: When you aren't listening, find us on social media
1: at Eurotour Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. So there you go then. Rewind Revisited. <laughs> it doesn't get any easier. Uh, for Eurovision 1998. And it was a good one. I loved doing that one. It was the first one we ever did. Uh, yeah, we got to speak to some great guests, including <laughs> the man who sat next to Katie Boyle in the audience. Hopefully you enjoyed that. It tides you over until a brand new episode of The Eurotrip drops next Wednesday. It'll be a brand new episode of The Eurotrip. In turn, it'll be a brand new edition of Rewind. As we rewind back to, I'm not going to tell you. It does begin with a one and a nine, however, and an eight. I'll give you, yeah, I'll I'll tell you that much at least. 1980 something. It's a fun one. It's a good one. But I'm going to leave you with that because I've still got some more work to do for it. In fact, I am just about to go and record another interview, uh, so that shall be good fun. So in the meantime, don't forget you can support what we do here on the podcast on Buy Me a Coffee. That's Buy Me a Coffee forward slash Podcast. You can keep in touch with us online as well. We are at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Hello at EurotripPodcast.com on the email and you can read all of our exclusive stories on EurotripPodcast.com as well. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review and rate us five stars. From me, James, it is Goodbye.